The following podcast is part of the MindBodySpirit.fm podcast network. Meditation doesn't have to be a solo practice. Meditation is more fun with friends. Looking for a way to drop in and hang out at the same time? Join us online at Omega Institute for a meditation party with self-proclaimed meditation nerds Dan Harris, host of the 10% Happier podcast, Sabene Selassie and Jeff Warren. This three-day retreat will stream live from Omega's Hudson Valley Campus, May 17th to 19th. Don't miss the party. Reserve your spot at eomega.org slash party today. Why is shame such a powerful emotion? How does it affect us mentally, physically, emotionally? I'm Nadia Davis. I'm a mom, author, attorney, and kundalini yoga teacher who has experienced public shaming that brought me to my knees. On this podcast, I'm going to tell you how I'm living the work taking shame out of the shadows. I'll give you real-life advice and skills to take away with you throughout your day. You'll hear from powerful guests who have overcome trauma and emerged stronger than ever. You too can ban the shame within and around you. Join me. You are not alone. Hi, everyone. Nadia here with a very, very special guest, Nancy O'Malley who was the former district attorney in Alameda County and so many other things um, I can't wait to share with you. This is going to be one of the most difficult and freeing conversations and informative. She wrote the preface in my book, Home is Within You, a memoir of recovery and redemption for an extremely important and personal reason. The book is so much so a statement how we all deserve a safe place to share, cry, and be vulnerable. And often it seems we can't find that outside ourselves, especially if you are a trauma survivor, you're in the midst of something very painful and confusing, Um, you're finding it difficult to accept you may be a quote-unquote victim, Um, you know you are, there is a place within you where we have to start. And I call it home. I call it a home, what a home should feel like. And when we create that space within, we are able to connect to our truth and slowly begin protecting ourselves and a healing journey. So today's conversation is going to be uh, kind of personal. A lot, a lot of stuff will be coming up. Um, and most importantly, some great legal history and technical history all through the leadership and amazing, amazing trailblazing work of Nancy O'Malley. I'm going to do my best to be bold and speak on behalf of all survivors of interpersonal fraud, um, narcissistic abuse disorder, dyadic abusive relationships. There's so many different names to it that I now know, yet when you're in the midst of it, there are so many layers and it is so confusing and painful. 
And when our responses to that pain and abuse are shamed, it gets even more difficult. So I stand here to acknowledge your truth because I was able to finally find a place to acknowledge my own. And the solution in the big picture scheme of everything is Nancy O'Malley's leadership. It really is understanding the internal survivor's reality, the perpetrators, abusers, what, what you feel comfortable with, the, the psychological tactics, and balancing that with more trauma-informed investigations, community responses, and justice implementation. She is really the one that has brought in that perspective, that leadership across the nation. She is recently retired Alameda County District Attorney. She joined the office in 1984. In 1999, this is very cool, she was named the first woman to serve as chief assistant and in 2009 became the first woman to serve as district attorney in Alameda County, an office that was once led by Earl Warren. How cool is that? Now, I can't over-exaggerate Nancy O'Malley's national and statewide leadership for her innovative and trailblazing vision. Her career has made combating violence against women and children one of the highest priorities nationwide. She has handled thousands of cases involving interpersonal violence and exploitation, from being a trial attorney in Alameda County to leading drafting and passage of legislation. When I myself found myself in the trenches of psychological terror that was very, very difficult to understand, all of this is in the book, I did not know how to get out and prevent myself from what ultimately became a violent physical assault. The public shaming after and the judgment of the relationship as well as my behaviors after were so deeply painful. And it took a decade to really free myself from a, a little less than a decade, it was a seven-year journey to free myself from all the outside name calling and let alone begin on my own shame within. Nancy O'Malley told me recently at a book event up north that my case led to new legislation and strangulation law investigations and I was blown away because I was merely trying to get out and survive and heal during all of that and was told by therapists to not have any contact or look at anything online and everything of the sort. But here was Nancy O'Malley the entire time with insight and compassion into a survivor's reality 
knowing the power of facts and truth. And so when she told me this, I said, please come to on this podcast. I want to know about that law and that, but I also want to know how she began her, how she got involved initially in all of this and got to this place today where she is truly changing, changing victims' rights and accountability for perpetrators and just a real, true, authentic perspective in the justice system that is really, truly helping others. So I hope that that explains why this is both deeply personal and legally technical in a very informative way. So Nancy, thank you, first of all, so much for believing in me when I was hired to lead the Family Justice Center in Alameda County, but also just being the incredible, incredible leader that you are. How did that all start? Where was that little part of you as a little girl that always knew that you were meant to do this? Well, thank you, Nadia, for uh, just such a beautiful introduction. And um, I will say that my I'm inspired by you. Every time I hear you speak about life, about you know your experience, about this very important issue that is opening doors for so many other people who are going through similar situations. It's, it's inspiring and it's your selflessness about being able to share your experience. It's not so much the details of it, it's the how it has impacted you emotionally and intellectually. And it oh, wow. takes a lot of courage to once again, put yourself in the limelight because I do remember the type of, or the experiences that you had after um, you were separated away from the, from a very violent person. Um, and you withstood it. You're a, you are a, a giant in terms of your interpersonal strength and your self-awareness. So I'm so honored to be here with you and to call you my dear friend. Um, so how I first got involved, uh, I have to go back to my childhood. So my parents had nine kids. Uh, my dad was always kind of an activist. Um, my mother was everybody's mother. And, um, you know, we always said that uh, even though they had eight or eight kids, ultimately, <laughs> um, one of my sisters died many years before, uh, that there was always room for somebody who needed a place. That was my mother. She never judged why people needed to come and stay with us. She just set an extra plate at the table or, <laughs> you know, put blankets on the couch or whatever. So my mother taught me about caring for others and using the strength that I had, inner strength, to be strong um, for others. My dad was, um, was when I was uh, in younger, my dad was the district attorney of Contra Costa County. And he, uh, I remember at dinner one night, we're all sitting around and he said to me, what are you doing? 
what are you doing with yourself now? Like to help other people. And I said, what do you mean? What am I doing? I'm like a <laughs> teenager. What do you mean? And um, he said, well, I've just funded a new program and it's called a program for victims of domestic violence. And it was battered woman's wow. alternative was the name of the program. He said, they need volunteers. So what are you doing? And I said, Oh, I don't know. I guess I'll go volunteer. Mm -hmm. uh, and that's how I really got exposed to this, this as a teenager, this horrible phenomenon that occurs in our community. Um, at a very early age, it was back in the seventies, I think it was 74. And he was also the first district attorney to ever fund a program that, um, that he, that wow. helped victims that directly and that uniquely. Uh, so we're talking my age, I mean, 50s, 50, 55 years ago. Yeah. When you say that it like that, the I level feel very of services. <laughs> yeah. Well, that's, you know, I'm 52. Yeah, exactly. So it's like, you know, when I was born, what was it like then? It was horrible. So um, what I would witness is that uh, most, most of the victims that would actually call the police were so severely abused, it took sometimes years for them to be able to have the courage to call for help. While yeah. the abuse went on for years, it was only when it became so uh, harmful and I don't mean psychologically harmful, that happens the first time, but physically harmful that they had to call the police. Battered Women's Alternative, and it was one of the first um, domestic violence shelters. Um, when I was volunteering, I was listening to women tell their stories about how, they, how long they had been suffering abuse. And what they told right. us at that time, which was not uncommon. And this is not a current criticism of law enforcement. This is a criticism of law enforcement being uh, kind of the last ones at the table. Uh, but they would, police would come and they would walk the batterer around the block and say, cool down, you know, right. just stop doing it, just calm down. And that little walk was supposed to end it all. And then they would tell the victim sometimes more times than I can, than I can recount. If you just make sure that you don't do anything to upset him, then Precisely. he won't be, a, you won't be hit. Wow. That was so blaming. And so like, you're Shaming. responsible for your own abuse, which was, in, it was horrid. So that was a lot and of it the was reaffirming the tactics used. By exactly. what word are you comfortable with? Abusers, perpetrators. What what word are you comfortable with using in this conversation? Um, I use uh, um. Well, I use them intertwined because okay, yeah, and that is what happens. And so it was reaffirming this blaming strategy when they would say that to the survivors, which happened to me. Exactly. So then, okay, how? So what else was it like then? So, um, you know, for, for women, they, and it was primarily, it was all women in those days, men, while they may have been being abused, it was a small percentage. Um, but so what we started seeing 
was, now I'm going to fast forward a little bit because Mm -hmm. even when I then went to law school and then went into the DA's office, it was still the same behaviors Mm -hmm. that people were being, the, the crime was discounted. It was pushed at the bottom of the pile of violent crime. It was considered a family matter. Um, the and psychological, emotional abuse, even exactly. all of that was overridden even prior to the physical. That's and right. And the physical, it had to get extreme. Right. And okay. the other part that was really horrid was that there, were, there weren't a, very many resources. There weren't very many shelters for women right. to go to. But it was a, that was a tough decision for a woman with children to leave her home and go live in a shelter. Um, and, but what, but what was really difficult was that as if the case if the police were called and the person, the abuser was arrested, then all what we saw more often than not was he would call, he'd cry. I didn't mean to, it won't happen again. And of course, you know, this is someone that she at one point loved and now the emotional involvement with the abuser was so complicated that he would just cry or beg forgiveness. It'll never happen again. And then she would have him come back. The other complicated thing was that many of the women were stay home mothers. Right. They relied on the abuser for their existence. Right. And, you know, nobody at that time ever understood the impact on children who witness mm-hmm. violence or the transfer of violence to the children. It was so horribly complicated. And, and there to was get nothing into that the was psychological mind and help a survivor understand what web they've been put in. That's right. Is very difficult because of all the psychological and emotional um, tactics that are used before. And, uh, it wasn't until recently that I learned about like the narcissistic personality disorder and I hate labels, but I, you can't get there until the survivor themselves, until I myself was able to go within and, and know my worth and connect with the truth. But when things started changing did things when things started changing with services how how what was your how, what did you witness during that time well first of all the state of california started funding domestic violence program programs and um, right now the state of california has an it still has an advisory board the domestic violence advisory committee and i chair that committee i don't chair it i'm sorry i am the Sergeant at arms. Okay. Keep the rules. Um, But I've been on that committee for many years and we're still, still as active now about making sure that the way in which the law is and services are provided is appropriate to the survivor. Okay. Uh, So what do you, how would you then call what is appropriate? How is like trauma informed? That's a loaded question. Mm hmm. Well, first, yes. First, that there's uh, in police academies, there are classes on domestic violence. Uh, and um, 
one of the so so we need trained police officers to understand. But a lot of times, the way in which we change a norm uh, in is by changing the law. And so there's been a tremendous amount of uh, laws that are passed mm-hmm. that recognize domestic violence, that recognize the trauma, that incorporate in action that is required to be taken by law enforcement. Uh, so and- that's been under your leadership, this wave of integrating survivor-informed delivery That's right. services and investigations, but that took decades and there's still so much to do. But but you're, is that what you're saying, that the law and then it's been slowly resulting in a change? Right. It's the law for sure, but the law is only as good as the enforcer. And so mm-hmm. um, I one of the really strong lessons I learned many years ago I was sitting in Sacramento waiting to testify on a bill that I was um, sponsoring. Mm -hmm. And I was sitting next to a very elegant older woman and she sat all day. I mean, it was crazy. We were there for 12 hours or something before they even got around to calling a bill on domestic violence. And so uh, we started talking and she told me that her husband was a very uh, well-known physician in Sacramento area. And that he had been abusing her for years. And she Mm. never told anyone because her husband was prominent. They were a prominent family. And that she finally, when she read about this bill that was going to be heard, she had to come and hear what they had to say to make sure that they were recognizing not just, you know, they recognized everyone who's vulnerable to being a victim of domestic violence. And not just a stereotype that law enforcement or society had in mind. Right. Uh, And that was really telling to me because we can't judge. Mm -hmm. We could not write a law that protected one group and left out the other because of our perception of who is committing the crime and who is a victim of the crime. That's fascinating. And it's a survival tactic to present as though Mm -hmm. everything is okay. Like the officer saying, well, just don't do anything. Well, it's yes. So many layers, so many layers. Um, So the laws began to change under your leadership and Nancy O'Malley led so many different pieces of legislation to do that, including the development of the family justice center network and the development of co-located um, collaborative services for victims so that when what we used to call when they enter a port of entry, um, the service doesn't end at, you know, the ER, the, the police department or on the bus, that the, the survivors are linked to all the different services that they can get. Getting back to more trauma or survivor perspective laws, um, name name the, the the few that were the most critically helpful. So it was the law enforcement training that wasn't required before. Uh, it was not. No, it wasn't required. Okay. And then what? And then how about um, questioning of of survivors? Um, Nancy led the 
establishment of places where survivors could be interviewed, particularly children, in a in a place where they felt um, a little safer, a little where it wasn't as daunting of an experience. Um, but again, all of these perspectives, all of these ideas, don't don't evolve, don't come unless, like, as a society, we're starting to think differently. We're starting to say, what is really going on in that person? Um, let me take a deeper look beyond beyond what is just on the surface. So I'm, I wanted to ask you, before we get into the strangulation law, how does, um, how does like public shaming and or media skew the seeking of the facts in a case? Um, and, or, yeah, the, the public perception, how does that make it more difficult from a prosecutor's, from a district attorney's perspective? Um, and, and then that leads into the importance of the physical evidence and why it's so important. And that led to these other laws. I just, what is your perspective on? The, the media has an important role to play, not in revealing the number of incidents that occur, but rather giving focus to, in a, in a heartful, compassionate way, giving focus to the impact of domestic violence on victim survivors and their children. Um, that's one area in which the media really has a, a golden opportunity. What right. I think is that um, in some respects, the media is selling newspapers. They want people to read their additions. And so they can sensationalize or give focus to something that is salacious or something that is, you know, gossipy in order to get people to read about it. And, you know, sadly in our society, people like to read the magazines that talk about somebody's trauma or talk about somebody's sadness or their, their unfortunate situation. And so I think that the media, res responsible media, reports appropriately, but then there are all sorts of ways in which the way it's written, victims get blamed, the way it's written is very insensitive to, and doesn't really dig into the causes of domestic violence. It just tells a story that is, can come out salacious, you know, I see. people- yeah people or re media was reporting about the truth of the matter nor public awareness and where they it can be used for right and some some are are very responsible about that like mm -hmm. October is domestic violence right. awareness month i will say that every year we had i started this in sheesh, 1990 hillary hillary larkin and i started the um, domestic homicide, we called it the, uh, you know, our day of remembrance. And we honored uh, individuals that have been killed as a result of domestic mm -hmm. violence since 1991. And every year we would just add to the list and then we would have a public event. Beginning people, you couldn't even find a seat. Um, and, but media never showed up to hear the stories uh, from families who lost a loved one. It's and, so you know, this is a great opportunity. Yeah. 
to bring that yes. kind of public awareness. And the more the media or the more the public talks about it, the more people can feel like it's I'm I'm not an outlier. This right. is happening on my and not blog. have shame about exactly recognizing it within themselves that some this does the something painful is happening here. I need to reach out for help. Right. Right. And I don't have to be embarrassed. I don't have to feel like people are going to judge me. Mm-hmm. That that has been a huge, huge um, advancement in the advocacy world. And there are pioneers that have like batter women's alternatives and I'll call that anymore, but it's still right. around. And it's so interesting. I was interviewing Dr. Donna Blevin and a, a therapist, um, renowned in her work. And she, she was explaining the same thing was happening in, in a ton of national research on depression and suicidality and other things. And, and in the diagnostic book, the changes that were being proposed, they found a pattern of childhood trauma in depression, addiction, suicidality. And this was just, this is an historical fact that relates to this. And all of a sudden, those numbers, those findings of of a significant source being childhood trauma, um, were just ignored, and and just set aside. And just like with the events you're talking about today, the numbers that are having media stories that educate, that try and cover the victims, the survivors' perspective and experience so that others can recognize it. Why? It's so interesting. Why is that public shame there? And and the media has a golden opportunity, like you said, to humanize the experience and to have those. It's not just telling the story. It's talking about the human experience and getting, you know, to the beef and the real life issues and so, yeah. Well, you know, part of the uh, challenge for the media is most of their stories are two minutes, right? Right. So you can't tell you can't tell this in two minutes. You can you can spotlight somebody, and you know that public shaming sure. inadvertent. I believe. Um, I I truly do believe that it's they're not trying to do that, but it would be. But we don't see any more. Um, any kind of a documentary about this, like, like the, the strangulation law, it would be great to have a documentary on what that is and how California was leading the nation in addressing strangulation. And I, I have to say that the yes. people that are really at the heart of the, the documentary law and right. heart oh, okay. of training is Casey Gwynn and mm-hmm. Gail Strack. In fact, yes. they started a strangulation clinic that is exceptional. They mm-hmm. have police officers tr- uh, being trained. They have survivors. They have advocates. They have legislators. So that there is can so much understand. amazing groundwork and changes happening. So much. So those should be the stories. So let's get into what exactly. we. Let's get into that. Um. Yes, the Family Justice Center Network. And okay, they are speaking out and they are getting attention. And as well, it should, the the information that they're trying to spread should be getting out. So 
So say more, please. So <clears throat> before we, we, we started hearing more and more, not documented in police reports or in medical records necessarily. And by medical records, I mean there's an actual form that the state of California requires the medical provider to complete mm-hmm. um, okay. for sexual assault, domestic violence, um, child abuse, things like that. The we, medical provider, the, the, it may be a doctor or an emergency room. That's right. Okay. That's right. And I mean, the law says that they have to complete that form when somebody makes a report and they also have to report it to the police, which I support. I know there's been, and again, there will be another bill introduced to try to eliminate mandatory reporting by healthcare providers to law enforcement about domestic violence. Mm-hmm. My personal feeling is you, the survivor is never required to engage with law enforcement, but mm-hmm. if we don't know what's going on behind closed doors, it will continue. Right. And um, so I, I support uh, that the requirement. A mandatory of, reporting of mandatory a medical reporting. provider. And that is one of those ports of entries. And so, That's okay. True. So, so what, so the, the medical provider for years, nobody ever asked about strangulation. They never asked not, they, and they did, wouldn't, you don't even have to call it strangulation. How about did it's the perpetrator put his hands, I'm going to use he, um, but I know women can do, can be perpetrators too. Did he put his hands on your throat? Ask that question, but it was not part of the protocol and nobody thought about it. Then, and I remember one situation where I got a call and talking about, you know, this had strangled her or, and I said, tell the doctor to scope your throat. Just put mm-hmm. a scope down there to see the trauma So explain that. Well, we're going to get into explaining the scope, correct? Okay. So now, so, so, and the doctor, did they? No, because doctors didn't know about it. They, nobody thought about the internal injuries unless it was obvious. And so, you know, we've refined that quite a bit, hugely. Um, And so, but, but even still the law defined what domestic violence is. But what it didn't include was strangulation or putting your hands on someone's throat and restricting their ability to breathe. So the first year that the bill came forward, a lot of us uh, worked, testified on the bill, supported the bill. It didn't get out of the legislature the first year. When was this? I was trying to remember back. um, It was... it, it wasn't as long as you think it would be. This was in the teens, so probably 17 or 8, 2017, 18, 19 maybe. But we came back the next year. And um, it's, again, this was sponsored by, I think, by Casey Gwynn and Gail Strack and the network. Uh, but we came back and there was a lot of education given to the legislators about you know, the impact. I mean, you think about it and this is how they would, how I would talk about it. When the law outlawed the outlawed law enforcement from doing chokeholds on someone, which was literally put your hands around their throat till they pass out. That's what strangulation could be the same physiologic impact, 
So when we started linking it to other areas where the legislature had outlawed the use of these chokeholds or things, started to make more sense. And having more and more survivors speak out about the abuse that oftentimes included putting their hand around the the throat and restricting the breathing. And, you know, again, bruising doesn't show up for a couple of days. And so the very courageous victim that goes to the emergency room or is taken to the emergency room who says, this is what, you know, the hand was on my throat. That's where the doctors were missing a huge amount of evidence of abuse and trauma. Um, And so, so the law changed to say that not only do the doctors have to ask about uh, strangulation, but it has outlawed and has made it an enhancement and an addition to the charges that there was strangulation involved in this domestic violence. It's documented and shockingly, well, maybe it's not so shocking to those of us in this world, but that all of a sudden we started seeing the number of strangulations, hands on the throat, shot up because now it was being documented. And once we have the data to show this is not like a poor woman living in, you know, whatever, it's this is happening across the board to public figures, to, you know, the person who lives next door on your block. It's happening so much. I mean, I, I looked at the data. There were over 162,000 reports of domestic violence in 2022. And those are just the reported ones. In California? That doesn't even even capture all of the people who are living in silence, which is why your podcast is so critical. It's so important. So Nancy, Um, I'm going to ask you, um, There were charges for strangulation and grave bodily injury in my case. And when in the ER, I, I, I mean, I can barely remember it, but it was, uh, you have no voice to speak for yourself. You, 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 I had a concussion too. And it's just, you don't, when the staff is not educated or required by the law to to document the physical stuff at the same time that a survivor can't vocalize for understandable reasons what just happened to ask for it not i mean it's just impossible hopefully it won't be impossible someday that there's enough education out there um the the result is these unreported, these un, un doc, documented situations and cases. Now, um, the police in my situation did respond to a 911 call, or I'm not sure how it happened, but the people next door did call. And so the police came and then saw me and took me to the ER. And in the situations where that doesn't happen, again, this contact 
and with medical staff is so key and important that they are required, that they are trained, that they are asking the question. Um, now, what would have been different in my situation, which was in early 2012, not the teens, had that law been in place? And what is your understanding of what happened? It would have, well, you had other injuries. Um, you were, you had a lot of injuries and physical. Had they, had they, um, had the training and the, um, wherewithal to scope, put a scope down your throat and maybe it wasn't, uh, immediate, but to say, you know, come back for your follow-up. So let us look. And you remember Hillary Larkin, who is a physician assistant, who's been like one of the leaders. hero. Yeah. Yeah. She's amazing. And she's the she one is who, amazing. She, she taught me so much and that parlayed into speaking to other people and then helping with legislation. She taught me so much about strangulation because she was a warrior to get uh, that kind of training for medical providers so, but what would have happened um, and, at that time? And was she made aware? Like, I don't even know anything. She was aware. In fact, I called her and then she told me, call the doc. And I said, well, I tried to, to tell you, um, but she, I, I believe that she made the phone call. I don't, I can't confirm that, but I believe she called down to the emergency department and said, don't forget to scope the throat. Um throat. And so, uh, you know, I think that what would have been different is. I don't even know what, phys- what, what they gathered. I do know that, um, you know, uh, I know what was written on the ER report. The, I know that what injuries and all of that were written, but, um, it's, 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 healing to hear what was happening around out, outside with people. Um, it, it's healing mm-hmm. to know. And you know, the, the truthfully, the, the bravery of you and other victim survivors of domestic violence to speak openly and publicly about your abuse has had an enormous impact on our legislators. And here's another area where that has become so critical because they can pass a law, but if there are no resources to enforce the law, then it's a big, who cares? Mm -hmm. Um, But what happens is that when we, when very, very courageous people open your lives up in a public way, that the legislators then pass the law and then the resources follow. I see. So in California, the forensic exam for a victim of sexual assault or domestic violence can never be billed to the victim. It, mm-hmm. it has to be paid by the state or by the local law enforcement, depending on which, which one it is. That's critical. And right now the, um, VOCA, the Victims of Crime Act, which is a national bill that was passed 30 years ago or something, 
that they provide money to all the states to address um, victims of crime and Mm -hmm. money for sexual assault exams, money for domestic violence exams, child abuse exams, those types of resources are VOCA got cut in half this year. Mm. And, you know, this is our federal government, you know, not giving the same amount of resources, even though with awareness, community awareness by people like you, Nadia, of speaking openly, it opens the door for other people who have been living in silence. And it so opens what, the door for other people you. to step forward. So we need the resources. And, and getting out of that, that cloud, that psychological thing and is, is, is so important. And so um, I want to ask what would have been different in my case if that law been, had been in place and then um what was your thoughts about when the case was taken away from you because they 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 said that there was a conflict of interest and so right. i i, I want to ask those two difficult questions what would have been different had the throat been scoped and and what exactly is that so there would have been a, uh if they i mean i'm not an expert in strangulation mm-hmm. like gail streck or Casey or other people, but from what I understand that they can scope into the throat and see petechiae, which is broken blood vessels, basically. So they can see internal damage to the throat that is not going to be externally revealed yet. So if somebody puts their hands around the throat, the bruising a couple of days later will show up fingerprints. But what's, what happens immediately is damage to the throat. And, you know, somebody can die from being choked like that. Mm -hmm. Um, And so that's the first thing is that there would be documentation of that trauma. The second thing is that when the law changed, it actually recognized strangulation as a form of domestic violence. It was not recognized before. And it would think about it when somebody it went was to court, not? no, it was not even recognized. When somebody went to court, to so talk that's about why it people, said grave bodily injury on the charge. Well, unless you had evidence of it, and the grave bodily injury would My you'd have to really capture what the ter- trauma to the throat internal was. I see. Um, but it also didn't even recognize. It didn't even include any reference to strangulation. People didn't even think about this. Okay. Like, you know, grabbing you. So, so the law did a couple of things. One is it um, forced the law to recognize strangulation as a form of domestic violence, the, how common it is, because then now we're keeping statistics on strangulation if it's captured. And if you ask someone, you know, if, if you ask someone, were you strangled? They're going to say, no. Were you, did he put his hands on your throat? Yes. You know, so we had to educate people about what strangulation really is. And then lastly, is that it does enhance the sentence. Um, And so, so much was missed. So much great bodily injury was missed because nobody was thinking about strangulation. Um, And that's where in Alameda County, at least Hillary Larkin 
was the pioneer in saying, I'm going to start scoping people's throat to see if there's any trauma there. So that, that's what I would just, be different. It's so mind boggling that with the evidence in the ER and with the photos after, I, it's just so mind boggling that, that the attorney general's office didn't follow through with prosecution other than judgment of my responses to the public media and the shaming and the psychological stuff. And I, it obviously still comes up in a very painful way. Um, and I always asked the question, like, you know, how, how could that have happened? And I know that had it remained in your hands, that the physical evidence, um, the photos, that it, that it would have spoke for itself. And if I had the guts to stand up, um, if I had the wherewithal, see, I'm, I'm blaming myself to speak my truth about all the psychological things that, that had happened before and my behavior. And you're, it's just impossible at that point. So I want to thank you for using that as at least, at least I know that it resulted in, in change and positive change for others. Um, so they don't have to go through the same thing that, mm -hmm. that I went through. Um, it's a different story because of who I was married to and um, the positions that he had and then that I had. But the personal story, the pain, the, the abuse so in every way, psychological, physical, emotional, is the same. And when you're not believed... Um, there's help out there for you. You are not alone. And I believe you and start within yourself to connect to your truth. And slowly, slowly, you will see the light and hope. And so please don't give up. You are not so, alone. So one of the things that your, your situation, your story and others who have found the courage to speak out more, um, more and more, is that it shows that this is a unique crime. It's unique to, it's not like being robbed where somebody comes and steals something from you and there's violence. I mean, it's, it, it's the violence for sure, but this is interpersonal violence. And so my feeling in which I um, helped, well, or did, um, when I was a, a supervising DA in the office before I became the chief assistant or the DA, that um, I really advocated for having a special unit with specially trained prosecutors and investigators so that we knew how to present a case in court. Because it would be easy for a jury to get distracted away from the crime because of the person especially a person of notoriety and leadership that you were and your and bill was it's it would have been easy for a jury to be distracted but but trained prosecutors know how to present this kind of evidence so that juries don't go oh this is just a fight between a husband and wife girlfriend boyfriend whatever I see. they yeah. minimize it <clears throat> so specialized unit and for sure specialized training 
Um, and, you know, we're losing some of that now. Mm. And a lot of it is driven by resources. I understand that. I don't agree with it. I think that if they're going to be resources, put them at a place where it affects people at the core of their existence. And yes. in domestic violence, it isn't just the victim, although that's the main, but, you know, children, children. who are raised by someone who right. is experiencing trauma that doesn't have an outlet for that uh, addressing that trauma. The, the ability to describe and lay out and present a very painful human experience in another is, is the skill that you're advocating for and that that you see is dwindling in the county. Well, and the other part is that we also passed a law that said that perpetrators, convicted perpetrators have to go to 52 week batters intervention program. Mm -hmm. And I mean, it wasn't a heavy lift. It was an hour a week for 52 weeks hoping that they would gain some insight and some other things. You know, it was rarely enforced. And we, mm. there was a, someone in the probation department who was a bulldog about this. And I don't know if it's because she had her own experiences. It could have been. But she would sit outside and take role of who was going into the class to make sure they went in. And what we saw was uh, she brought it to me. And we saw that these men were going in, they were paying $100 or whatever the cost was, and walking out the door five oh minutes later. Gosh. So we went to the Wasted court I went to the court and said, right. I want to prosecute these providers for fraud because they're you. telling you that this person is going to treatment, but they're not. They're just collecting the money. Two of the <sighs> programs disappeared gosh. overnight. They just left. I don't, we don't even know where they went. The court would not would not take action <clears throat> against the the batterer for fraud. engaging in this fraud. They it just wasn't a priority for them. And if we can't have accountability, right? That's right. That's right. And With training the resources we have. What's happening? There and must be accountability. People. That's right. It's supposed been, to be changing things and reducing numbers and changing things right. for the better. There has to be accountability. How and frustrating. Some of these men probably grew up in a domestic violence home. Right. And their manifestation is because of that. Ex right. They could be helped too. But, um, you know, there's there was a push at one point. You see that they learned this <clears throat> and to start to heal the little boy within them. It's all That's circular. Right. At that's why that you just hit the nail on the head. That's why this the response to domestic violence is so critical, because mm -hmm. without that response and without voices like yours, the it, it's a, it's generational and it'll just keep going. Because how are we going, at least with the law, we can say if it's if, it's, if it is enforced, you have to go to counseling to stop this behavior. And for the victim survivor, that's why family justice centers exist. What we were doing was we, well, I calculated it. We, mm -hmm. for a victim of domestic violence in Alameda County, before we got the grant to open our family justice center, that victim would have to go to 25 different locations to access all the services that we were offering. The mm -hmm. truth is if it's more than one, forget it. Right. They're in trauma. With children in tow, children. especially. Now right. I'm going to run all over town trying to find, right. okay, 
So the Family Justice Center was the genius genius invention and the numbers Green. of the efficiency the num- uh, the numbers were so s- spoke for it the cost of an arrest of an investigation was maximized if somebody is getting help and changing their lives for the better and their children's lives for sure and and that that's faltering right now yes well i i'm you know, I haven't been in the courtroom around this, but I've been in Sacramento and the advisory group. And we're we're actually um, at our advisory group is that we've spent the last year really trying to um, modernize, if you will, the process. So it's how are we how are the shelters and the domestic violence providers identifying human beings and just even identifying their nationality or their identity is um, something that we're paying a lot of attention to. We had a two-day strategic planning meeting, which is amazing for an exo- for an advisory group. Um, I paid for it, meaning my, I from our budget, uh, because it was important for us to have the leadership to develop our leadership in how we're going to advise the state to address domestic violence in today's time. Mm-hmm. Um, very successful. I mean, I have to say Cal OES, the Office of Emergency Services, continues to put resources into violence against women programs and violence against people programs with involving children, domestic violence, sexual assault, stalking, all of those things. Um, you know, and, and listen, we haven't even talked about stalking in domestic violence cases. Which oh, is we're going to, I have to interview you. Hold on. Nancy O'Malley, thank you so much for your leadership. I I am going to ask if we could please come back and have another conversation about um, accountability of the abusers and all the legislation that was passed to create programs for prevention and, and you know, requiring the batters programs and the accountability of, of programs and them not committing fraud and wasted funds is of such importance as you explained. And then also a conversation about stocking and all your knowledge of that would be so, so helpful. Um, the overall point and message here is there will be the he said, she said stories, and there will be also the survivor's experience that is layered and then the judgment of the survivor's responses. But ultimately, it is the physical evidence that is so powerful in bringing out the truth of what happened, which is the truth of the matter. So, Nancy, um, are there any other things that you would like to say and point out or um, cover in our in our future discussions? One of the uh, unique perspectives of recognizing strangulation, or they they say strangulation or suffocation, okay, is that it doesn't require there to be substantial injury. It doesn't, it's not like a great bodily injury enhancement to a charge. That's the first thing is that just, just the 
act itself is uh, is recognized. The other thing I'll just say is that it takes a huge amount of courage, tremendous amount of courage for domestic violence to be reported. Um, I mean, for many that this, the, the perpetrator is the provider of the resources to the family, or, you know, there's a complicated dynamic between them and children. And, but it's, so it doesn't have to be the end of relationship. It doesn't have to be uh, like the worst thing that ever happened. Getting help through the court system can stop domestic violence. And as importantly, to show children that this is not a way of life and that they do not have to grow up falling in the same pathway as a victim or a perpetrator. So just getting help through family justice centers, there are shelters and providers in every county in California, every county, and they're funded by the California Office of Emergency Services. So, you know, reaching out and getting help is, is takes bravery, it takes courage, but I promise that it is, it is a benefit that is provided to victims at no cost to them um, to be able to have a life that is free of violence, have their children grow up in a home that's free of violence. And Nadia, the and last thing I'll say you about have you is- the, Once you have the courage, there's a plethora of resources out there. And if you're feeling- just stuck in that bubble like I was. And here I had helped to deliver these services and I couldn't even see it myself or didn't, didn't have the ability to reach out for help. It starts on, it starts with sobriety and a mental stability that you can find within yourself. And trust me, the warmth and the support that you will receive after just that following that one ounce of hope, that 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 road to your truth, it, it's so worth it. And you just anyone out there that is in the middle of barely recognizing the situation they're in, it's okay. It took that long. It, it's okay, but now it's time. It's time to reach out for help. And you're you are the model of recovery and resilience and your courage in sharing your, your story and digging deep in, you know, pretty, I mean, you've shared how you, how deep you've had to go to reveal your truth. And that is inspiring for other people. It makes it safe for other people to do the same. So thank you for everything that you have done and are doing, continuing to do. I would not be alive today without having had our, our roads cross. And just thank you so much, Nancy O'Malley, for everything. Thank you so much. And I say thank you right back to you. <laughs> you are not alone. If you are dealing with shame and trauma, please reach out to me through my website, nadia-davis.com. You can get a free band shame tip sheet and find out about upcoming events. I'd love it if you picked up my book, Home is Within You, wherever books are sold. If you like this podcast, please tell a friend. 
leave a review. And make sure to follow me on Apple, Google, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Sending warm hugs. What is it you really want in life? No matter what you've been through, you can still achieve it. I'm Sandra Ann Taylor, and in my Energy Activation Podcast, we'll explore the science of manifestation, and I'll give you specific techniques to shift your energy in order to make your dreams a reality. I also do live energy readings, and you can be a part of the show by emailing your questions to me at sandrataylor.net. Join me on the mindbodyspirit.fm podcast network or wherever you get your podcasts.